This morning, I just, I really am thankful for a chance to teach. I've said it often. I do not, and Ken says it too. We didn't, it's not that we feel overly qualified uh, to teach. Um, we, neither one of us are formally trained in teaching the Bible. We have had training, um, or Andy, uh, but it is a gift, and we do feel it's worthwhile for us to get to know Scripture well. Uh, also, that I believe more and more uh, with every passing day that you have a call to be able to interpret Scripture on your own, apart from Wakefield, Ken, Andy, or any of these Bible teachers we've had. That is your only, um, only way to clearly discern the truth, is what happens with you, your own study of Scripture, and what the Spirit does in that time. And it's the only safety you have from being disappointed in man or women who have failings and are not Christ. Uh, and so I cannot make any guarantees about my own morality that says as long as Wake's morality holds, then his teaching holds. And, and we've seen that so many times in other men and women, and it's, it's rampant right now, I'd say. And maybe not any more so than more, but we have more windows into that, into that reality, I would say, today. So uh, that's, an, uh, I guess, a required disclosure every week. Uh, the World Watch List is something the op Open Doors, and I think Vo Voice of the Martyrs also publishes. Um, the World Watch List is the top. There's, they rank them all, all the countries in our nation, about where cr Christians face the most persecution. Um, anybody have some guesses about which countries fall in the top ten? You can throw them out. I'll let you know. Um, try to get number one if you can. Someone said Africa or North Korea. North Korea is full-on commun uh, communist with a dictator. North Korea is number one. Um, any guesses? And if you heard it, you can't comment. Any guesses of what country is number two? China. There's a guess. Any others? India. India. So China uh, on the open doors list, which again, part of this is subjective. Um, China's number 17. India is here, sorry, India's number 10. Number two, even before the week, is Afghanistan. And so they won't surpass North Korea's number one, I imagine, but it didn't get easier this week for Christians in uh, Afghanistan. And we got Somalia, Libya, some of Africa, right? Um, and then it's just, yeah, and if you look at the world map, you see the Middle East and Northern Africa is just, tough, which is interesting because that's where Christ had his ministry, isn't it? That just floors me. Yeah. Thanks. I might go with the handle if it continues like that, because I'm not even moving much yet, Caleb. Um, I could even stand at the pulpit today and go old-fashioned style. Becky, I'm sorry for whatever I said that offended you. <laughs> I, was I wasn't even safe. Romans 13 is, can be controversial. I haven't even touched on that yet. So um, I'm really excited just about this whole thing. And the reason to talk about this world watch list a little bit is to say CIE. Anybody know what CIE stands for? Or any guesses? Context is everything. CIE, context is everything. And so it helps in every situation to have context. You may overhear me say something to Sarah, and without context, you may think, wake is foolish or so cruel. Um, 
but like if you have context, you might see it differently. Um, I hope that doesn't the case even without context, but any, anytime you don't have all the information, or we can jump to so many conclusions that just don't apply. And how often does that happen in scripture and our interpretation of scripture? And so when we look at the current persecution throughout our world, at this very moment, at this very moment, I teach here while something horrific is happening somewhere in some place, um, something that we would physically throw up at. Um, we wouldn't have to even witness with our eyes. If we could feel the full weight of the evil that exists at this moment, we would be sick. Thankfully, God shields us from plenty of that. So there's that, what I would say is a horizontal look, like what's happening in the far reaches of the places that we just don't see very often. And that can even be in our own communities, right? Where um, there's a family that lived two doors down from Sarah and I uh, a number of years ago, and now we know they live in Rosendale. Every time we had to come and interact with that family, it was hard and sometimes um, made us a little bit nauseous, to be honest with you, because there's some bad you know, hygiene habits there. Um, the reality is, if every day was spent living in their household, my life would be completely different. And I would see things completely differently. Um, so like horizontally, doesn't, we don't even have to go to Afghanistan. In our own community, if we're looking out and get a clear picture of what's happening around us, our perspective changes. But then there's also what I would say, um, the, what I'd say I'm seeing the timeline as a vertical timeline now. Horizontally is like, here we are. And vertically, as well as we go back in time, we can be students of history. Does anybody really enjoy? History class was one of their favorites. We have one, two. Sounds like, oh, let somebody else go first. I don't want to be the only one. A few. Um, I know history wasn't my favorite early on. Now it really is more intriguing to me. Um, and I think as I get older, it feels like how not long ago most of history actually was, as opposed to all feeling ancient. But when you look at history, um, you also get a clear picture of the perspective of our God who has no timeline, right? And so... I think it's really important to go back into history and not only look at like how far back we can go and what's happened, where this all come from, and we've done that by going through scripture, um, but also in particularly what was going on in those times. And that's something you hear often when you examine scripture. Um, so this is a map of the Roman Empire uh, and its full extent, and there's some details there, but basically the, the Mediterranean Sea right in here, and it's like, Rome just wanted all the beachfront property, basically, um, is what they were doing, <laughs> as, as it looks. And you can see here would be modern-day Israel or Judea, um, often in those times. And so this is where uh, Jesus' ministry was, a lot of the New Testament. And then, you know, you can look at Paul and the other early apostles and disciples, uh, their travels or to these places. This was pretty much the Western front of New Testament scripture with you know, you see hopes of like, oh, we want to go over here later. Um, but it's really interesting just to see that's the real place. You can go visit there. Some of you have. Um, and it's interesting. What else was going on in, when the letter of Romans was written, in particular, Romans 13, is this guy. Um, a real beauty, huh? That is a depiction of Nero. And Nero is, we've talked about him quite a bit because Nero is historically known as being very hard on Christians and one of the first to really persecute. And Nero, Nero's life is like kind of hard to watch, basically. Uh, so the estimation is that Paul wrote Romans in years A.D. 50 to 58, is what I read. You know, in history that long ago always gets tough about nailing it down. This guy came into power 
in AD 54 or AD 52, one of the two, right in there. And then he came into power when he was 16 and then committed suicide at 30. So 14 years. Um, so the same time as what we're finding Romans 13 in. Nero uh, was full of himself. He just was maniac. Uh, and he would kill. He killed his own mother or had her killed. He did all sorts of atrocious sexual acts. Um, he, he had his first wife murdered, and then his second wife, um, if you have sensitive ears, cover them. His second wife, he killed by kicking her while in the stomach while she was pregnant with his child. Um, so that's the kind of guy we're dealing with in Paul's letter to the Romans. Whatever you think about any president you've had in your lifetime does not hold a candle to his atrocious acts. Um, yeah, I'm going to go. I'll go with the handheld. And that becomes important because often we get to tough scriptures and we add our own conditions. And we add our own rationalizations of why this doesn't apply to me or my time and place. Um, if you want to go into Rome further outside of Nero, just the type of the um, you know type of culture it was is sometimes hard to read about. But you do know this too, that you read the big headlines of a culture, and that's what all history has time for. You only get the big headlines of any particular time and place in history unless you do a lot of deep diving, and it's hard to find. Um, but when you see a Roman culture, you're like, oh man, there's a lot of craziness. There's a lot of cool things too, really interesting. But then you forget like, hey, there were still families just like ours who lived in these times, who were trying to do the best they could, um, who were trying to seek the truth, who were having to deal with what the real fears, the real joys of this time, the real fascinations of their own technological advancements. Um, wasn't that, that was a part of their world too. Um, and they're just doing the best they can, uh, hopefully, to try to know what's true, as often I would say about these families that I say here today. And so there's the quote that says, sometimes you miss the, uh, seeing the forest or the trees, which meaning like you're so mixed in the details you can't see the big picture. But I think the opposite also happens. Sometimes you can't see the trees or the forest. Your only big picture in history is often that. And you sometimes forget the details of what, was what were individuals facing? What were their feelings? And how did they make choices? Which I think can be really powerful for us because what are we going to do after we get out of here? Even now, you're making choices about how do I become who God called me to be? How do I believe what's true about him? And you see individual choices of children Mothers, fathers, I don't even know how accurate that picture is, um, but at least something to tie us to both the big picture of what Paul was talking about in the Roman Empire when he's saying these words about authority, as well as what it means for the individuals. And that really connects us back to the end of Romans 12, which gave all these like, what, is, what does a living sacrifice look like? It looks like loving your enemies. It looks like uh, adoring what is good and abhorring what is evil. This is what it looks like. So if you haven't read Romans 12 slowly and just kind of a, a list of remembrance of what does living sacrificially for Christ look like? What, what are those people called to? What are we called to? Read Romans 12. It does connect us back in there. But in continuation of that thought, what does it look like? Paul goes into um, Romans 13, but there's three other points I want to make before we read Romans 13 even to set us up. 
Um, number one is that Nero, um, when you read about his life, you can just see the intense insecurity that he had in himself. Uh, just, you know, wouldn't allow any criticism because you feel like any criticism was taken and he'd make him angry and then you'd often lead to murder uh, and say, we were a lot like Nero that way. And in our insecurity, it often drives us to things that are not what Christ is calling us to. And you can see what, this is my own fabrication of like how I see insecurity sometimes playing out. It's like insecurity and fear are just so closely linked that when we're insecure, we don't feel very confident about ourselves. It often leads to fear. Um, when, we, when we have doubts about who we are or what our place is in this world, it can lead to fear. And often when we have fear, it leads to more insecurity. So it kind of snowballs on itself. But then all of that sets the stage for what do we believe? And why do we believe it? And then our beliefs influence our behaviors, which I think Paul's talking to. What you believe, he laid out in uh, the importance of what we believe about Christ all up into this point of Romans. And now he's kind of addressing, so if you believe that, what do the behaviors look like? And so you can ask yourself, what are my insecurities and fears? What do I fear right now about our country, our government? What am I insecure about that I currently have, but I'm afraid I won't have, or that I currently enjoy, but feel it could be taken from me? And feeling that and beginning to get honest about it, about your own insecurities. Because sometimes, uh, and we think about bullies at school, right? Are bullies really confident usually? Well, they're on the outside, yes. On the inside, what do we know? Like, they're usually very insecure, very, um, have very low self-esteem, have probably a bad situation at home. And so out of their own insecurity, they are often punishing others. Their behaviors at the end are driven and start back at insecurity. Uh, and so in our own life, it doesn't maybe come out as violent behavior in us all the time, but what are we insecure about that then drive some of our strongest beliefs within drive some of our strongest behaviors. I think it's important to examine ourselves in this before reading Romans 13. Um, Yoda says it well, fear is the path to the dark side, which, hey, that sounds spiritual. Fear leads to anger, anger leads to hate, hate leads to suffering. So a little bit different uh, angle Yoda takes than Wakefield, but we're basically the same. Uh, here's the uh, third point I'd like to make before we read Romans 13 is the temptation to claim persecution. I feel it personally. I'm not judging or accusing you of this same temptation. I know I feel personally, I would guess many do. Why would we have a temptation or see a temptation to claim persecution and claim our own suffering? Well, if uh, someone would turn to John 15 for me and read those scriptures, we will see Christ's words. And I think we'll get a clue of why there is a real temptation to falsely claim or be tempted to claim our own persecution and suffering. And ever somebody gets to John 15, would read those three verses and someone else can hit on chapter 16, verse 33. What did Jesus say? you, Katie. And then someone else said 16, verse 33. Nice and loud for me. Yeah. 
1633? Go for it. Or anybody else there? Just shout it out. Right. So Jesus said, hey, in me, you follow me, you believe in me, you are going to have what? Trouble, persecution, suffering. And does that sound exciting to anyone? On its face? No way. I don't want to be discomforted. We believe in Christ because he's the God of all comfort. We do not show up as masochists to Christ. I'm like, all right, I'm ready for eternal pain. We say, no, I see as you as the internal comfort that we don't have to live in pain anymore. You're the way out of pain. And he says, in me, to believe in me, the way out of discomfort that's plaguing you physically, mentally, spiritually, in me actually is a period of discomfort. It's a paradigm that's hard to understand, but that's what Jesus is promising. So if he promises persecution and tribulation, why might there be a temptation to claim it for ourselves. If he promises it for his followers, we say we should experience it, right? So if we get anything that allows us to say, ah, here it is, all of a sudden this uncertain persecution that may be really painful, if we can get it in a way, oh, this is my persecution. We feel like Christ's prophecy for us is fulfilled, check. I don't have to worry so much anymore about really hard things, check about maybe losing my life or having all my assets stripped from me or seeing a child taken from me. So as long as I can check persecution, that will save me from further persecution. I'm not accusing you. I'm just saying this is how Wakefield's brain works. I am quick, like here's my persecution. Whew, don't have the same persecution I've read about in other books I've seen in movies. Ah, I think there's a real temptation for us to be, hey, you're persecuted right now, church. When in reality, it's like, eh, really? Are, are you really being challenged in what is most important to you? And I would argue I have, and it applied to me directly into deep parts of my heart. And, but I would say many other times I have not <laughs> in ways that people said, oh, wait, that's tough on you. I'm like, it's not. It's not tough on me um, because my heart understands what God's doing in this situation. Uh, so uh, a real thing to keep in mind as we prepare to read Romans 13. And here's a question for you, which is kind of rhetorical. Is it possible for a person who does not fear God to serve God's purposes? Everybody on the count of three, one, two, three. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. We've seen so many examples of it. Okay, so the four things we've looked about, the context of Rome, of evil Nero or crazy Nero, and just the whole context of Rome in general of sexuality and if you want to do the research by all means there's plenty of things i don't feel comfortable saying up here and you know for wake like that's pretty that's something um so yeah do your research on rome if you want to but beware uh number two is that our own insecurities of what possibly if if you are challenged by romans 13 does that have roots in your own insecurities number three is um the temptation to claim our own persecution. I've already been here with this. I don't even need to worry about further. And then finally, is it possible for a person who does not fear God to serve God's purposes? All right, would somebody be willing to read the first seven verses of Romans 13 for me? Oh, 
as somebody gets the guts to do that, read Romans 13. Um, one, one note about we are very pro-life, right? And one of the debates that we see the headlines all the time is abortion and the choice to end life in the womb or not. Uh, so Rome, very common practice to uh, the abortion techniques, and probably some exist at that time, but what's most common is for the male of the household, the midwife to lay the baby on the floor, and if the male would pick him up, then the baby's gonna stay. If the male doesn't, then the, uh, then the baby will be just set outside. Like that's the reality of pro-life, pro-choice in Rome. And that was the common practice. So whenever you think it's really, oh man, are we just throwing ch children away here? Like, yes, we are. This isn't new. It's not new when you look at hist history in context. Um, Romans 13, verses 1 through 7. Anybody? I, I speak enough, so I'd like someone else to read it. Thank you. Nailed it, Teresa, thank you. And thank you to my earlier readers as well. Um, reading scripture is good in itself, even if you're not listening very well. Um, prefer to listen, and that's what we're gonna do now. Like, okay, what does this say? I, I'm pretty pumped up about this scripture because of the time and place of, number one, we got to see the transition from one administration on this side to the other administration on this side federally. Um, also, we got to see the social media interactions of this side versus this side. Um, also, I know we live in a country and I have a personal bent towards liberty. Um, someone call me a libertarian as far as my, the way I think policy should be set. Um, I was like, oh, that label carries so much to it. But I just know like, hey, freedom is awesome. And that's what Christ honestly came to do at the very depths of why is he here? To set free the captives from what? From sin. Um, and then bondage manifests itself in so many ways. And just to be set free in liberty and to be a true liberal instead of a liberal in the sense it's used now, but liberal is like, hey, I'm for liberty. I'm for freedom. That's my own personal bent. And so uh, why it's so helpful to me to read and be challenged by Romans 13, because if you look at some other people who share that same like cry for freedom, what they also usually share is a passion for taking it to the authorities, sticking it to the man. That's their way, like, all right, let's fight back. Um, and that is certainly challenged by Romans 13. So let's start together of just examining authority and making sure we have a broad picture of it. Because even now, what was one of the first things I brought up? Is the federal government. Is the federal government in the United States the end-all be-all? No, 
It's not. There's much more than authority just than the executive branch of our government or even the legislative branch. So what authority are you going to encounter this week? And there is no wrong answers here because if it's authority to you, that's meaningful. What authority are we going to encounter this week? I know my kids are getting ready to start school uh, in a new environment at Avenue City and they referred to their new principal as highest supreme. <laughs> that is steep authority over there, yeah. Sits in the back of our church to make sure she knows what she's getting into. <laughs> so the, and so Becky has authority as the head of a fairly large institution and that's that's pretty big authority. Becky also has authority in her life. Do you answer directly to your superintendent or the school board? Both. Both. Yeah, so so she has two sets of authority in in her week as well. And what other authority are you seeing out there this week? Right. Yeah, that authority, there's, it's all there, but it's spread amongst many. Yep. What other authorities, what authority in your life are you going to either have or be under this week? <laughs> Time is an authority in your life. <laughs> Which is actually the, the authority of like, what are you getting up for? Like, he needs to be at school because of the school authorities, because of the state authorities who say, hey, kids have to be educated in our state. We're an authority there by the state of Missouri. We have to educate our kids. It's not a choice. We have. I told Sarah, this has particularly challenged me, because I historically have not oh, been very excited at all about obeying the speed limit. So I leave here, and out here on the streets of Fillmore, it's probably 20. Uh, probably 15. I don't know what it is on the side road. Yeah, I don't even know the law out here. Lawless. Until you get to the main road, then I think it's 25. And then you get on uh, A or H Highway, and it'll be 55. And it's hard to maintain that speed on the hills. So, Hanner? Parents have authority over children. Absolutely. Children still in the home. What else? God's authority, absolutely. Thank you, Jim. Local government. Local government, yep. Yeah, exactly. The mask mandates, like that, all of the pandemic has often been on the, the federal scale, but to say our counties have had much of the power locally of what's hap what happens. Um, and I know our commissioners personally, you know, so it's not like these are, men in their offices, you know, like, I know these men. You know their families. So we have city officials in Savannah. Here in Fillmore, we have some authority. Um, how efficient local government is, you know, varies from place to place. But, yeah, local government, local police departments, and uh, our sheriff, that is authority, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yep. Really good. Our marriages definitely contain authority. Yeah, those are good. Um, I mean, as you go to school and work, just personal relationships, there's like little hidden authority in some of those too. It's, it's really everywhere. Um, many times it is formalized. And I feel like that is what Paul 
is speaking to right here, the formalized authority in our life. Um, I, like I said, in many ways, this is easy for me, Romans 13, to submit to the authorities in my life. Uh, Sarah and I have both admitted, like, we are kind of the rule followers. I was very afraid to get in trouble, you know, as a kid. I, I did want to obey. Some of you are not, right? You're like, rules? And Driscoll talks about that a lot when we've listened to him teach. of just like, yeah, it's pretty cool. He was one of the ones like, hey, put rules on me. I just know I'm basically going to say it's meant to be broken. I, I should challenge the rules. And there's just that category of people. And there's some of you here um, who do that as well. Um, in my own life, though, I can see plenty of areas where it's like, okay, it's, in many ways it's easy for me. But in any other, many other ways, it's not. A small example, but it's actually really big, is speeding. I traditionally, and I know now, like talking with law enforcement, it's like, hey, it's kind of a 10% issue where if you're going over 10% of the posted speed limit, that's when you draw attention. So it's like, okay, therefore, if the speed limit's 70, I can go 76 and be fine. So what's happening when Wake drives 76 on the interstate? Well, from my perspective, it's very practical because when I have young kids and you try to go somewhere, the faster you get somewhere, the better because they don't do well traveling in the car. So as a loving father, I'm going to get there as fast as I can. Why is the government trying to break down my love for my children? I don't know. But the reality is people have agreed in our, you know, and who those people are, I know there's some debate to it. But somebody in authority has posted that speed limit. Now, what's interesting is to say, yes, and that is, I could say, the speed limit's good because there's a lot of bad drivers out there, right? Has anyone ever said, oh, these drivers out here are bad? Uh, some funny research, and I didn't get in the details of like exactly where it came from, but it applies to almost everything, but particularly driving. I think it's near 80% to 90% of drivers think they're above average drivers. Something wrong with that statistics, right? Because average says it should be about 50-50 if we were honest, that there's 50 below and 50 above average. 80% think they're above average. 100% of couples on their wedding day believe they won't get divorced. <laughs> you know, and um, you know, what, uh, certain other statistics, like we all just overestimate our own abilities. And so I get out there and drive and I think, well, I'm one of the ones who can exceed the speed limit because I'm a better driver. And why are you laughing to that? That wasn't a funny moment. Um, but what I know is that I, it's kind of ashamed of how often like I am actually, what you know to be true, I'm not a great driver. And I've done things that are straight up deadly on the road. That if we sat here and watched a video of me and some of my worst, if we had the top 10 worst driving moments, it wouldn't even be funny. You know, it'd be pretty disheartening to y'all. And it'd be the same for you probably as well. Maybe not as bad as mine, but it would to all of us. If we had to actually see our worst moments on the road, you'd be like, wake, honestly, what were you thinking? Like, what were you thinking? And it would be sad. And so therefore what I know is, am I better than others? Well, maybe in some ways, in some days, yes, I'm a better driver than others. But am I so good that I can ignore what my authority has said? This is what people should adhere to. Yeah, but you won't get caught till you're 70, till you're 77 miles per hour great, am I supposed to obey only when I won't get caught? It's the very thing that I've talked to my kids about lying. Like, hey, you can get away with lying almost every single time. But if you get away with lying every single time, what is gonna treat you, teach you as a kid or as an adult, that lying works. 
Lying actually does work at times to get you out of a situation. But the problem with being dishonest and dealing with lies is that then it can take you to situations that you think it's still working for me and all of a sudden you're trapped because you weren't honest. So we treat lies super seriously and sometimes the way we've come down on our kids with certain lies, um, really you're like, okay, it was a piece of candy. But to us, it wasn't about candy. Like it wasn't about screen time. It wasn't about uh, just a small word to their sibling. It was about the fact that you you have to know that lying's gonna kill you. And we can't just say, oh, this instant wasn't so bad because then we do not want to ever think that lying gives us anything because it's only what we believe is being lured into the dark side to kill us, even at the earliest stages of it. So therefore me going 77 it's like, oh, it's not so bad in this situation, except the fact is it's set by my authority. And what I'm doing is I'm saying, I am deliberately disobeying. I deliberately disobey my authority. Small example, right? Speeding, most of us have sped. Many of us have been caught for speeding um, and we don't wanna get caught for speeding. It ruins our day. But, and I'm not even suggesting this is your own, like, hey, Fillmore Christian better be known for not speeding. And yet you caught speeding and like, we're going to come down on your heart. That's not the point. That's up for you. You may decide that that's not what God's saying here. I know for me, I'm like, hey, authority everywhere else. But it's like, I totally neglect that in my own life. And there are bigger things I do in my own life of not submitting to authority. Um, and I'd imagine you, you all have share the same. Now, is this a matter of saving grace? If you do not submit to authority is your grace, the offer of grace to you in danger? I would say absolutely not. Where does grace come from? Grace by faith. And faith, though, shows itself through how we obey. But do not get it wrong that when we talk about, hey, how someone treats their governing authorities in their life, this is a matter of, hey, you can't be saved unless you do this. No, that's not it. You are saved by believing in Christ as a savior from sin. However, if someone goes around saying, well, this doesn't apply to me, or I, I pay no attention to this, then you come in a question like, do you really believe Christ saved you? Do you really believe that? Because after we're talking about the great, full, rich, depth, grace of Christ, and Paul's saying, and in that, you should be living sacrificially. This body is meant to be spent and poured out because this body is temporary. So how does it get spent and poured out? By loving genuinely, deeply, by abhorring what's evil, by loving and blessing your enemies. Crazy. And then he comes into Romans 13, by submitting to your governing authorities. And in America, is that hard to do right now? Knowing you have a culture that largely doesn't like a lot of what you believe. Is it easy to submit to authorities in America right now? Have you complained about the authority in your life in the last six months? <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Yes, I have. Is Paul's call here to say this should represent Christians? Is it particular to only Rome in the first century? I don't think so. We don't see hardly any conditions here. Now, it leads to a lot of good debate and questions. And how a lot of you probably think that I'm just coming in and leading to, hey, you really need to uh, start talking friendlier of President Joe Biden. You really should talk friendlier about him. That is not what I'm suggesting. I think that's much too broad. Um, the examples of authority and then what I think is the call is to examine 
our hearts, your heart. I think that's where the church and social media often gets it wrong right now. We are broadcasting these things and saying, this is how it applies to you. There is some of that that's beneficial. But at the end of the day, what I said, it's between you and your creator for you to say, are you really believing that Christ is Lord of your life? And how good is it that you have all of these litmus tests that Paul and Christ gave us and, and Peter and others gave us to say, what do you believe right now? Because I admit it's hard to know sometimes what I do believe. I'll say one thing, but then act another way. I'll, I'll maybe be motivated one day and say, yeah, I am believing it. But then the next day be doing something different. I'm hard to figure out. You're hard to figure out. You're complex. So I need all the help I can get. And I'm thankful because Paul's laid out something here that says, hey, wake living sacrificially, you think you believe in Christ? Well, let's take a look at your life to see how true that is. And this is a great opportunity for you to do that. And yes, do I think the way you soak in your news about our current state of the world and our country and our state and our county is important? I do. I think it's really important. I think it should be examined. If you're afraid to let someone examine it, let someone who disagrees with you examine it, that's not a good sign. If you're afraid to be challenged, if you can't be challenged or talk about something that you know you have differing opinions on, it goes back to that little chart in security leads. If you get upset by that really easily, what do you think the root is? Insecurity. Does Christ give us a standing of insecurity? Not at all. Christ gives us a great confidence. We should be so eager to engage those who disagree with us, is my feeling. Not because we're, oh, let's shake up the pot. I did tell Brewer in one of my letters, like, hey, you know I'm asking you these questions because you think I like to stir the pot. I hate stirring the pot. I am a non-conflict guy. But what I do believe is that stagnant water is nasty. And I think stagnant lives are nasty. And so, therefore, let's challenge, let's be willing to be challenged for the sake of examining where we're at in relation to the truths of this world. And so therefore, we can examine, is my current view of my federal government lining up with Paul's call in Romans 13? Is my current view of my state and local government, is my current view of the school district and the school board lining up with Romans 13 and Paul's call there in 1 through 7? Is this what Paul is saying? And that's why I don't want you to hear anything specific from me today, because then I think we're talking about the forest as opposed to the trees. And the trees are your families, you, and what your call is to be faithful to Christ, to actually believe on this great saving grace that says, I've set all things free, I'm restoring all things. And then how you relate to the authorities in your life should reflect that. So I would love to talk more in practice about, okay, so how does this apply to when the next uh, cycle an uh, election cycle comes along federally, but how does it apply when our county commissioners get together on Tuesday? They get together on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and what's happening there? What? How does it apply to my kids when they see their principal in the hallway next week? Um, your kids in your classroom, and also knowing that this call is eager to apply it to others when it's actually applying to you and saying, "Hey, hey, don't you realize that God's telling you to?" Submit to my authority as an elder in this church. How bad you've all been doing, submit to my authority. Like, that's not what's called. In the same way we've talked about um, God's call for husbands 
to love their wives as Christ loved the church and wives to submit to their husbands. Any husband who has to lay claim to that verse to require submission is probably in, hot, is in danger <laughs> because that's not meant, that, that part of that teaching isn't meant for the husband. The husband part is to love her as Christ loved the church. In the same way, this isn't to say, here's who should submit to my authority. It's saying, who are you to submit to and how are you to treat those in authority in your life? Um, I, I remember, I'm going to read this, um, cause it's really good. It's from gotquestions.org. And if you've ever been on that website, it's just, they do very well. Um, but in this website, the question is, was the American revolution a violation of Romans 13? And it's like, that's a, to me, that's a really good question because one thing we all share, I think is an admiration of what our founding fathers did to establish a nation that's been something special in history. Um, and who knows how the history books a thousand years from now, if there is a thousand years, we'll write back on this, this period of history. So, okay, bear with me, this will take five minutes, but it's really good. The American Revolutionary War was a pivotal event in world history, and the Constitutional Republic that followed has produced the freest, most productive society ever, no one can deny that most of the founding fathers were religious men or that the liberty they fought for has benefited millions of people. But was their revolt against England biblically justified? Specifically, was the American Revolution a violation of Romans 13, 1-7? During the years before the Revolutionary War, the issue of justified rebellion was widely debated, with good men on both sides of the issue. Not surprisingly, most English preachers, such as John Wesley, urged restraint and pacifism on the part of the colonists, while most colonial preachers, such as John Witherspoon and Jonathan Mayhew, fanned the flames of revolution. Before we weigh the actions of the colonists, take a look at the scripture they struggled with. The passage starts out with a clear-cut command to submit to the governing authorities. Immediately following the command is the reason for it, namely, authorities are God-ordained. God's not out of control when he puts these people in power. Therefore, resisting earthly authority is the same as resisting God. Rulers are a deterrent to evil in society. In fact, a ruler is, quote, God's servant, bringing retribution to the wrongdoer. Christians should submit to human authority, not only to avoid punishment, but also to maintain a clear conscience before God. Specifically, Christians should pay their taxes and pay the proper respect and honor to God's servant. The commands in Romans 13 are quite broad aimed at everyone, with no exceptions listed. In fact, when Paul wrote these words, Nero was on the throne. If Romans 13 applies to the cruel and capricious Nero, it applies to all kings. The early church followed the principles of Romans 13 even during the wicked and oppressive reigns of Claudius, Caligula, and Tacitus. No qualifications or outs are given in the passage. Paul does not say, be subject to the king, unless he is oppressive, or you must obey all rulers, except usurpers. The plain teaching of Romans 13 is that all governments in all places are to be honored and obeyed. Every ruler holds power by the sovereign will of God. And he references so many scriptures in this that I can't get to. New Testament examples of believers paying proper obedience and respect towards government authority include Luke 2, Luke 20, Acts 24, see also 1 Peter 2. This is not to say that God approves of everything governments do or the kings, they are always right. On the contrary, scripture has many examples of kings to be held accountable by God, see Daniel 4. Furthermore, Romans 13 does not teach that Christians must always obey the governing authorities no matter what. The one exception to the general rule of obedience is when man's laws are in direct conflict with the plainly revealed law of God. 
Examples of God's people practicing civil disobedience include Peter and John defying the Sanhedrin in Acts 4 and 5, the Hebrew midwives refusing to practice infanticide in Exodus 1, Daniel ignoring the Persian law concerning prayer in Daniel 6, and Daniel's friends refusing to bow the king's image in Daniel 3. So as a general rule, we are to obey the government. The lone exception is when obeying man's law would force us to directly disobey God's law. Now, what about Romans 13 as it pertains to American Revolutionary War? Was the war justified? First, it is important to understand that many of those who supported the Revolutionary War were deeply religious men who felt that they were biblically justified in rebelling against England. Here are some of the reasons for their perspective. Number one, colonists saw themselves not as anti-government, but as anti-tyranny. That is, they were not promoting anarchy or the casting off of all restraint. They believed Romans 13 taught honor for the institution of government, but not necessarily for the individuals who ruled government. Therefore, since they supported God's institution of government, the colonists believed that their actions against a specific oppressive regime were not a violation of the general principles of Romans 13. Number two, the colonists pointed out that it was the king of England himself who was in violation of scripture. No king who be who behaved so wickedly, they said, could be considered God's servant. Therefore, it was a Christian's duty to resist him. As Mayhew said in 1750, rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Number three, the colonists saw the war as a defensive action, not as an offensive war. And it is true that in 1775 and 76, Americans had presented the king with formal appeals for reconciliation. These peaceful pleas were met with armed military force and several violations of British common law and the English Bill of Rights. In 1770, the British, 1770, British fired upon unarmed citizens in the Boston Massacre. At Lexington, the command was, don't fire unless fired upon. The colonists, therefore, saw themselves as defending themselves after the conflict had been initiated by the British. For the colonists read 1 Peter 2.13, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority, and saw the phrase, for the Lord's sake, as a condition for obedience. The reasoning ran thus, if the authority was unrighteous and passed unrighteous laws, then following them could not be a righteous thing. In other words, one cannot obey a wicked law for the Lord's sake. Number five, the colonists saw Hebrews 11 as justification for resisting tyrants. Gideon, Barak, Samson, and Jephthah are all listed as heroes of faith, and they were all involved in overthrowing oppressive governments. It is safe to say the American patriots who fought against England were fully convinced that they had biblical precedent and scriptural justification for the rebellion. Although their views of Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 is a faulty interpretation, there are no provisos concerning obedience in those passages. I mean, like he was thinking these guys were looking for ways out of it to do what they wanted. It was the popular preaching of the day. At the same time, the self-defense argument, number three, is convincing and substantial rationale for war. In the last paragraph, even if the American Revolution was a violation of Romans 13, we know the patriots acted in good faith in the name of Christian freedom, and we know that in the ensuing years, God has brought about much good from the freedom that won as a result. A lot there. I'd love to talk more about it. I highly encourage you to come to Sunday school next week. It's probably going to get fiery. It'll be good and fun. Um, what I'd say is I do disagree with his la one of his last statements. We know the patriots acted in good faith. I don't know that. Those men could have been saying, here's my biblical justification, they still could have been acting out of complete selfish interest. And you know what? It doesn't concern me. It's not my job to judge their intention. It is really interesting to use their experience and apply it to my own decisions today of how am I to submit to government? Because what I see is good fruit that came from the American Revolution. But I have no idea how God feels about the American Revolution. You say, oh, but good, look at the good it's done from it. Yeah, but good also came in Japan 
after the emperor came to power that allowed Japan to be destroyed and actually freedom to be instilled in Japan. So was it good that the emperor ever was in power? Was it good that Adolf Hitler was in power so we're not dealing with so much stuff in Germany? The, re the reality is to judge the big picture on our grounds is a really hard thing to do. Can God use bad people to accomplish good things? Absolutely. Did God hate King George III for what he did to the American colonists? King George III had very, very devout uh, Christ-following disciplines in his life. Do I know King George III's in heaven? No, I have no idea. But is there evidence that King George III followed Christ? There is some evidence for that. Is there evidence that many of our founding fathers followed Christ? Yes, there is. Am I worried about what that means for my own call? I'm like, how do, do I have to obey Romans 13 this way? That's really up for me and God. And I need your help to do it, not to tell me what I believe, but help me discern scripture for myself. You have to discern this call for yourself. And it has to give light to nothing else, but what are you doing with Christ? If you're separating our time from Christ, you're missing the point. A great example in missing the point. This is all about Jesus. Your relation to your authority in your life is about Jesus. If it's not telling you something about what you believe about Jesus, it's all a waste of time. It'll all be dust soon. These governments, how we talk about politics, how we talk about it on a local, state, federal, global level, there is global politics. All of it is meant to show us what we believe about Christ because that's the only thing that matters. And it's the only thing that cannot be touched by no matter who is in power. I do, would not be surprised if someone, if God showed me my future and he showed me persecution. I, I really hope it's not torture for me or my kids. I really hope that. But it might be. I am more afraid of physical torture than I am afraid of losing assets. I'm, but I want to say to you before um, today, and I want to say to any Christian in my life, I would hope you would keep pushing me on to say, wake you, I hope you're willing to give it all for the sake of Christ all of it because that is when i know he's on the throne of wake's life and that's when i know hey the best is yet to come when he has it all anyway even if i have to go through pain for years like physical torture i and and knowing many have gone through that saying hey i'm going to trust him he'll call me call me through it he'll lead me through it because he is the ultimate authority and it should impact what i feel and think and react and how i talk about my current authorities in my life and it should do the same for you. So again, this isn't a call to be like, oh, you, you all are talking about that your commissioner's wrong. You all should really uh, change the news channel. You all should really adjust your view of Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden or Donald Trump. That is not the message today. It is, you should examine all of those things. I should, we all should. And because, the, here's the other cool thing, everybody's talking about it. So if we get this right, we have our in in every conversation that can point back to Christ. Every conversation, because you know everybody's talking about it. So if you know how to bring this into the context of Christ, all of a sudden you're worried about, ah, what do I say to show Jesus? What do I say? If we think about this in the way Paul wants us to, I think it gets really easy for us to glorify Christ in our conversations. We know that politically only gets hotter in our day and age. So that's exciting. That really is. I um, mean, in the meantime, Hannah, you better listen to Mrs. Grimes this week. <laughs>